if you would uh, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to thank you for allowing me to preach the gospel to you. It is an honor. Um, I want to thank Pastor Vance and um, just the, the privilege it is to be a part of this wonderful event. And uh, I am excited about what God is doing in Southern Baptist and delighted to be a part of that. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read from uh, verses 16 on. But I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that's God's word. Now this is war language. Opposition, clash, fight. And you may be wondering why I would choose this passage and, and this sermon for this theme. Here's why. God must work in us if he is to work through us. The preparation, the work, the battle is in the soil of your heart. It is a war for control. Who will be in control, flesh or spirit? Now, most of us are fighting for change in our character, but, we're, but our methods are betraying us. And, and Paul is pointing this out for this church at Galatia, and I have the feeling it is true for us in our churches. And Paul is saying essentially this, there's something more powerful than external rules for change. And he's using this powerful metaphor for us to tell us how people who belong to Jesus really change. And, and, and his formula is simply this, spiritual fruit equals spiritual maturity. Biblical maturity then leads, we see in the rest of scripture, to biblical mission. Biblical maturity equals gospel aspiration. And his, and his whole metaphor is this. We change spiritually into the kind of people that God wants us to be, to be on the mission of Jesus, like fruit grows naturally. So let me offer this first point. Fruit, according to this passage, grows holistically. Look in verse 22 and 23. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Now, you see a, gr a grammar syntax issue immediately for all four of you who remember seminary, right? Um, there is a singular noun, a singular verb, and a plural predicate. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit are, what does it say? 
the fruit of the Spirit is. And here's why. These things are not separable, they're inseparable. You don't simply have one grape on the vine, you have a cluster. You don't simply have love or peace, they all grow together. There is a symmetry, which means if all of the fruit are not growing together, then none of them are growing at all. Now, the temptation is to kind of do the checkoff thing. Well, I've got love, but I struggle with patience, right? But we're missing the point. The point of the passage is this. When we're being led by, walking by, keeping in step with the Spirit, the Spirit is in charge, and all of the fruit of the Spirit is manifesting through our lives. Now, here's the temptation. You say, wait a minute, I know people that seem to have one but not the other. Well, there's a difference between personality fruit and spiritual fruit. Take the word faithfulness in our text. That word has the idea of assurance, of confidence, of conviction. And there are people like this, right, who are confident, assured, and bold. They speak their mind. You never have to wonder what their opinion is. And some of you are like, well, that's me. I must be spiritual. Hold on a moment. Hold on a moment. See, if your assurance, if your conviction and your boldness, your faithfulness is spiritual fruit and not personality fruit, it will be accompanied by gentleness and kindness. There are people who are very sweet, very gentle, very patient but they're not very firm, they're not very bold, they're not very courageous, right? See, if your gentleness was spiritual fruit, it would also be accompanied by boldness. Why? Because that's how Jesus was. You measure your maturity by comparing it to Jesus, not by focusing on the strengths of your personality or by comparing yourselves to other people. In fact, if you take those nine traits of the spiritual fruit list, you should look at the weakest one because that tells you how mature you really are. You're only as mature as your weakest trait. And here's the point. God wants to change all of you, right, holistically, because that's how fruit grows. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting all the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of throwing up. He's putting up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, God is changing you holistically because that's how fruit grows. Now, fruit also grows, we see in this passage, internally. Verse 23 says this interesting phrase after listing all the fruit of the Spirit, against such things there is no law. Now, what does that mean? Well, essentially this. You cannot legislate the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot law inner character. Wouldn't that be great if you could? Like that one deacon who always blows up the business meeting, right? That, that, that one church member who always, are, you know, complains. Wouldn't it be great if you had some kind of bat phone? I guess you could use your cell phone. And you call the spiritual fruit police and you say, this person lacks joy, please lock them up, right? You, 
you can't do that. You can't legislate in your character. There is no police for that. And this is Paul's point. What law does is it deals with the externals, the results of sin. But law cannot do anything about the source of sin. Law can discourage theft, for instance. If you steal, you will go to jail. If you live in the Middle East in some places and you steal, you will lose your hand. Law can discourage murder. If you kill someone, murder someone, you will get a life sentence or in some states the death death penalty. If you rape someone in some states, you might get castrated, right, in some parts of the world. Law can discourage, but law can't identify the root of anger, greed, and lust, which are the sources of murder, theft, and rape. Law can tweak behavior, but it cannot change the heart. Why are you saying all this? Because Paul's point is only the Spirit of God can do that. The Spirit can go where the law can't. The law can deal with the actions of sin, but not the motives of sin. The law can deal with the consequences of sin, but not the cause of sin. When you try to use the law to change yourself, you will get and may get, and your best hope for is simply behavior modification. But you will not get true character transformation the way Paul is talking about. The law can change behavior, but it can't change the heart. Only the Spirit can change your heart and cause you to want to oh God, to want to know God and obey Him, to love God and to have joy, which by the way are the first two things on the list. So here's a question that I hope you're asking, Pastor, and I hope this just isn't a convention or a conference. I hope you see this as an opportunity to grow in the character of Jesus. The question is this, how can I know if I'm simply using the law to change my life or if the Spirit is actually at work? How can I know if I'm doing behavior modification or if in fact... I'm experiencing character transformation. Here's a question to answer that question. Who is more impressed with you? Those who know you the least, like most of your church, perhaps people in your community, or those who know you the most, your staff, your friends, your family. See, the law can help you perform externally, which will impress your acquaintances. It will. It will, it will cause people to go, wow, that, that man is spiritual. But only the Spirit can transform you so internally, and it will show up around your friends and your family and your staff. You cannot legislate character from the outside in. The Spirit works from the inside out, which is why fruit grows internally. Now, lest you be discouraged, this point might encourage you, because fruit grows gradually. And if you look in verse 19, um, number one, it gives us all the sins, right? 19 and 20 of our culture, but also our church, right? Um, And so it talks about this idea. There's a difference that Paul makes between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And there's a whole study there that I won't get into. I commend that to you, the distinction between the, the fruit and the works, but the works of the flesh. And then he lists all these things. Um, sexual immorality being one of them, any sexual contact outside of the marriage covenant, sexual immorality. Um, and, and, and the point I want to make here is when, when, when someone commits adultery or fornication, that normally doesn't happen. You don't bump into somebody and that happens. There is a process, right? There, there, is, there are many seeds that are sown. Another one of those words that really speaks to my pre-conversion life and unfortunately my post-conversion life all too many times is this, this little word that's translated fits of anger. 
I know pastors don't have problems with anger, and I'm the only one, but let, bear with me just for a moment. Um, when I was, a, when I was a, a young kid, when my um, dad left our family, and I got larger than my mom physically, and I pretty much did whatever I wanted, and when I didn't get my way, I would freak out, which is a Greek term for losing it, right? I would just lose my mind, and I was kind of a bigger kid. I was an athlete, and so two different times on two different occasions when my mom didn't let me do what I wanted uh, uh, to do, I punched out the windshield of her car. Numerous holes in the drywall. I was an angry young man, right? Now, uh, you don't go from just being angry and all of a sudden, you know, I think I'm going to punch a hole in the drywall. I think I'm going to take out mom's windshield. That's a process. That's a cumulative thing, right? So Paul is pointing out this kind of um, cumulative nature of sin in our culture. And, and, and you don't have to have a, like the gift of discernment to see that in our culture, right? Things are getting bad. It's not getting better. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Now, let me flip it, though, because I think he's making a point here that not only does our flesh grow gradually, not only does sin grow gradually over time, so also does spiritual growth happen over time. I live in a, um, the urban core of our city, and so our, the, my, in my front yard, my, my neighbor's yard touches mine, right? There's no, like, sidewalk. There's no, uh, you know, like, shrubs or trees or any kind of barrier. They butt right up next to each other. So we're always, like, vying for the line. Whoever mows first, like, you know, trying to figure out where the line is. Those of you in those settings, you know, it's kind of a weird thing with your neighbors. And uh, if, you mow, if you don't mow too much, uh, if you mow too much on your side and then they leave a little strip because you didn't do your job, it's a whole interesting thing that happens in an urban area. But, but the question is this, how do I know when my yard needs to be mowed? Well, I, I mean, I don't sit and watch grass grow. I mean, I have a ministry, right? And so I actually do some things. But but here's how I know, because it's kind of hard to know. Now, if you have weeds in your yard, it, it's pretty easy to know because these weeds pop up. If you've got nice grass, it's kind of hard. When is it time to mow? Here's where I know. Here's when I know when I have to mow every time when my neighbor mows their yard. Why? Because I can see the difference, right? And, and see, some of you, maybe the best thing that could happen to you this week is you could actually get around some brothers and sisters Maybe some of the messengers from your church, maybe some leaders, some pastor friends from seminary, from college, colleagues, and, and just let them in on how God is growing you. That, that you could actually sense and see God is actually at work in my life. Fruit is actually growing, right? And I can see it like I can see the grass cut. God is working in me. I would have flown off the handle at, the, at a situation. That circumstance would have sent me into the fetal position a year ago, but I was able by the grace of God to withstand it. Why? Because fruit is growing gradually in my life. Though it grows holistically, I'm growing more in the character of Jesus. And for some of you, you need to be encouraged that way. You need to get around. Maybe some of you are just like, I don't know where that growth is happening. Have the courage to ask, not just where am I struggling. See, most of our accountability is over where we struggle, which is good. We need to repent of our sin. But sometimes we need people going, You're, that's good. You're growing. It's not just a great sermon, Pastor. I like your heart. 
I like what I see growing. I like the way you're treating your wife. I like the way your wife's countenance looks. I like the fact that you know your kids' names. That's a good sign. I like the I like the fact that you know your kids' friends' names. That's the kind of gradual growth that we need to be encouraged by. Because some of us just don't focus there by personality, by temperament. And for sure, a lot of times, our churches don't cause us to go there, right? But we need that. Now, here's the question I hope you're asking. How do I spike or accelerate growth? How how can I change? One of the worst things we can do as, as people who stand before the sacred desk in front of God's people and preach the eternal gospel is to preach a message of change that is not happening in our own lives. It it is to be very articulate, very nuanced, very um, thoughtful, very passionate about this message out here when it's not happening in here. How do you change? How do you spike? How do you accelerate the growth of the character and likeness of Jesus in your heart? How does that happen? Um, Verse 24 tells us, look at it with me. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now let me just uh, preach the gospel to you. You ready for this? We belong to Christ, those who belong to Christ. Those of us who have ceased being our own saviors, trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, trusting in his work, not our own, his record, not our record, his moral performance, not our moral performance. Right? Those of us who, have, who, who know Jesus, we belong to Jesus, meaning this theologically. We get the benefits of Christ's work. We are as loved and as accepted by God the Father as Jesus is. Now see, that did not bring any amens, which shows me you're either asleep externally or internally. That is the good news of the gospel. This is the message that once we give our lives to Jesus, we are hidden in him. That that God the Father looks at us and he sees his son. We have been made right. What what do you mean? Well, we've been crucified. Our sin died with him. We, We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We are treated, we are not as holy as him, but we are treated as holy as him. We are reckoned as righteous because of the work of Jesus. Now, by the way, this is scandalous and will freak your church out if you preach this. It freaked John Bunyan's church out. Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, got criticized for preaching this radical message. This is what Paul was critiqued about in in the beginning chapter, uh, 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 verses of Romans chapter 6. They said to Bunyan, Bunyan, if you keep telling God's people that they are accepted and loved apart from their performance and solely on the work of Jesus, if you keep assuring them of God's love for them in Christ apart from their spiritual performance and apart from their works, they will do whatever they want. And Bunyan said, if I keep assuring God's people of his love for them, solely on the work of Christ for them, that he is their righteousness and that he accepts them because of Jesus' record and moral work for them. If I keep assuring them of that, that, they will do whatever he wants. 
Now that is where change starts. But that has to happen in you, Pastor. That has to happen in you, which is why in verse 24 that word crucifies in the aorist tense, this kind of uh, this sense of those who crucify. It, it happened in the past, we know from other passages, but it's something we do, right? We, we, it's a, it's, we do it now, we do it now. They do it, it's been done, but they continue to crucify the flesh. Now, he did, he, here's the crazy thing about crucifixion. Um, it's a slow process, right? He didn't say electrocute the flesh, stab the flesh, shoot the flesh. He said crucify. It's a slow death but it's a certain death. And see, this is much more than the way uh, change is preached from pulpits. This is more than just educate your mind about not doing something that is wrong. This is more than just tweaking your emotions to feel bad about the wrong. This is more than just applying your will to say no to the wrong. Certainly it involves those thinking, those kind of things. But change does not happen simply from informing your thinking, from working up your emotions, or setting your will. He's saying the way to change is to kill the flesh. Now, if you're going to kill it, you better understand it. And this is why the pulpit is so important, because we teach God's people and we give them biblical categories whereby they can think biblical thoughts about God. What is the flesh? Well, we know from Romans chapter 8, one way to look at the flesh is it's that part of us that has yet to be surrendered to God right? As followers of Jesus, we have the flesh, the indwelling flesh, that, that indwelling sin that, that literally does not want to submit to God, that literally wants to be God, okay? That's one definition of the flesh. But Paul gives us a little bit different definition here in chapter 5, and I want you to see this. Let's do a little Bible study. Look in verse 16. Paul writes, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now look down in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now look, look again, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Do you see what he's doing there? These things are synonymous, these two verses. What he is doing is he's equating desires of the flesh with being under the law. Now, let me be very clear. To be under the law here in Galatians is not about obeying God's law. Of course we obey God's law. Because we are redeemed and have the power of the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus, uh, there's an empty tomb, we literally can't obey the law now for the right reasons. So, I'm, so he's not saying don't do what God says as some people preach. No, under the law in the book of Galatians is when you take your moral performance up to God and say, God, I want you to accept me because of this. Accept me because I've been faithful in my quiet time all week. Accept me because we give this amount of money to missions. Accept me because I preach these kind of sermons. Accept me because I do these kind of good deeds. That's your flesh. When you take anything other than Jesus, offer it up to God and say, accept me because of this. So the flesh is that part of you that tries to please God by what you do. The flesh is that part of you that's trying to work for God's smile, work for God's performance, um, work for God's approval in your performance. And so here's what will happen. Your flesh will take your job and make it your central identity. 
Your flesh will take your relationships and make them your primary significance. Your flesh will take sex and make it the only way that you feel approved. Your flesh will take working out, exercise, diet, and make it the only time that you feel in control. Your flesh will take your hobby and make it the only time that you feel alive. And so a great question for you to ask this week is, what is my flesh trying to get me to focus on other than Jesus for my meaning, purpose, righteousness, and significance? What is my flesh trying to put before me so that I'm looking to it for the hope that only Jesus can bring? What is my flesh trying to get me to find identity in other than Jesus? Now, asking these questions, and I know this whole pastor's conference is like drinking from a fire hydrant, and so I apologize for all of the metaphors and all of the the, the shortness of of my talk, but here's where the big take-home is. All of these questions that I just kind of deluged you with, right? Um, You're going to try to fight for change, character transformation, so you're not a hypocrite when you get up and preach. It's actually happening in you, not perfectly, but in process. You're going to need some people around you. Right? You're going to need some people. Certainly grow, fruit grows holistically. It all grows together. Certainly fruit grows internally. Right? It's, it's, an, it's a spirit thing, not a law thing. The inside out, not outside in. Certainly the, 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 the fruit of the spirit grow gradually. Right? But fruit also grows communally. And we see that in chapter 6. Um, Paul writes in chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You need other people helping catch you, spiritual people, when you are caught. And you are caught, Pastor, a lot. And if you don't know that, ask your wife. Ask your children, ask your staff, ask your pastor friends, and maybe ask your deacons, right? But you have to be a person, and this text shows us, that is willing to deal with their own sin as they're dealing with the sin of others. Because you're you're spiritual as well, so you should be restoring. But you do this looking to yourself, that your sin is a bigger deal than their sin. I'm not saying the sins of the culture and the sins of your church are not great. Here's what I'm saying. You should be more worried about your sin than that sin. I'm not saying you shouldn't be worried about that sin. I'm saying if you're more worried about your sin and following Jesus and his character being transformed in you, you will then be able to deal appropriately with their sin because that word restore is the word that we use to set a broken bone. You don't want to go try and restoring people when you're not actively, progressively being restored yourself or you're going to do more harm than good sometimes. See, as, this, as we deal with our sin and help others with their sin, and, and then it goes back. Sometimes we help people, then they restore us, and we restore them. This, by the way, is what the church should be, a community of restoration, where a, a, a safe place to be pushed on with a dangerous message in, in, with the community of saints that, that, are, that are sharpening one, one another and encouraging one another and challenging one another. That's what the church is supposed to be. And this is what we're here to do this week, friends. You're not, you may have thought you were just coming to a convention, to a conference. You are here 
to be strengthened by your brothers and sisters so that the fruit of the Spirit grows in your life, which will, by the way, give you clarity and confidence and unction to share Jesus with the lost world. When God is doing something in you, you cannot not tell somebody about it. When you're just a pastor doing a, you know, sermon and running some programs, that's not real exciting. But when the Spirit of God is alive in you, when he is working in you and you say, only God could have changed that in me. That goes back to my family system. Right? That, goes back, that goes back 30 years. And he is changing me. I'm not justifying, rationalizing that sin any longer. I'm seeing it as God sees it. And he's changing me. Certainly he can change a prostitute. Certainly he can change the town drunk. Certainly he can change the hard-hearted deacon. Certainly he can change the, 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 my wife who I've sinned against. Certainly he can change my rebellious teenager. Certainly he can change them. God must be at work in us if he is to work through us. Biblical maturity results in gospel aspiration. What God is doing in you, brothers and sisters, is, is so vital to his mission. And we get it. We, get, we, 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 we don't get that. We get the cart before the horse. We think, well, we got to be about mission, mission, mission. And we do, right? The disciples followed Jesus. They were on a mission. And, they, and they, we like to say it like this. We don't, with our interns, we don't want to um, use them to get ministry done. We want to we, we, we use ministry to get them done, right? So God gets us done as we're on mission. God builds the minister as we're a part of the ministry. I get that. But I don't, some of you are so distracted by what you're doing. You're so distracted by the awesome things that's happening in your church, in the world. And I say distracted because you are making that an idol. That is your righteousness. That is, that is something that you are absolutely looking to for your meaning. You're ignoring the work and the character change that Jesus wants to do in you. Some of you, the most exciting thing you do all week is play golf or, or watch TV. Um, Jesus didn't die for you to be ex more excited about that and what he's doing in the world and what he wants to do in your heart. So brothers and sisters, pray with me and let's plead with God for the kind of character change that will spill out into a mission for a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men and women. Thank you that we get to be a part of your mission. Thank you that you um, are not surprised by our sin. You're not shocked our sin put Jesus on the cross, so we take it seriously. Our sin, uh, you slaughtered your son because of our rebelliousness, our sin, our, not just our actions, but our attitudes, not just our behavior, but our motives. All of it, you killed Jesus, but we thank you that we have his righteousness and our sin is covered. The blood has cleansed us. And so now, oh Lord, may we sense that acceptance and may we use that to fight our flesh, that we have the safety of our Father's approval to fall back into his arms and deal deeply with our sin so that character change can happen, so that we can be the people that are on mission for Jesus and so that our lives reflect our lips. That's what we want, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.